0: by Pierston Harnish but a huge third down conversion you got the game on the outside yep. on the move down to the 24 yard line of St. Francis who's winning he, he won't the say the score up waited for the pass short drop come on who's winning beautiful towards the right corner complete to Vanderkuy who steps across the plane
1: uh, say the damn score <laughs> you're listening to the original say the damn score podcast
0: part of the say the damn score podcast network Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 98 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan. And please, if you're willing, please retweet or share the show uh either on social media or tell a friend, whatever you feel like doing. It really helps the show to grow and expand and help other people. So it's a win-win for everybody. I get a few more listeners and, and someone else can potentially get something out of this show and from the guests that come on. If you're listening to this show on time, which most people don't, so it's probably not a big deal, but this is getting released a day later than normal. Usually I release on Thursdays, and I just got too busy the last week to even think about posting a podcast. Fortunately, this was pre-recorded in the can a couple months ago, so I didn't have to find a way to get an hour with somebody to record it, but just working my part-time retail job that I've restarted 18 to 20 hours back at Home Depot and trying to figure out all the logistics and all the billing and getting the first couple broadcasts underway on my new high school streaming platform that we've worked on. It's been crazy. That's uh, (laughs) the only way to explain it. It's been a good crazy. Uh, Everything has mostly worked fine. We had a few technical snafus. In the first soccer doubleheader, and we're still working on trying to figure out how to get reliable internet connection when we don't have Wi-Fi or a hardwire. But just know that if you were waiting with bated breath for this podcast to come out, uh, it's been late once or twice in almost four years of this podcast. Now it doesn't happen very often. We're not missing an episode. We're getting it out and. It's a really good one. This episode is with Bill Roth. He is a broadcaster for ESPN, was the longtime broadcaster for Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, and he took a job to go to UCLA. It was a bad fit. Came back and started the broadcasting program and helped build the academic program from scratch at Virginia Tech and. Bill has a fantastic story, and it was a pleasure for me to meet Bill when I went to North Carolina for the National Sports Media Association meetings. We talked there, and that is when he committed to come on the podcast. We probably recorded it uh, a month later, sometime in July, and just now we are finally getting it out. And Bill, it was a pleasure to meet you at NSMA, and... While the pleasure probably is mostly on my side, I appreciate you coming on.
1: Logan, it's nice to be with you. It was a pleasure for me, too, I assure you. That was a fun time up there. It's always one of the great events of the year when people from all over the country in our business, and and writers as well, journalists of all shapes and sizes and ages get together. So it's nice to uh, visit with you for the first time.
0: We'll start it where we usually start it, but in a little bit of a different way. I like to ask people when they knew they wanted to get into sportscasting, at what point in their life. And I read that you knew pretty young, but I also saw a video that said you wanted to be a firefighter before that. So at what point did you switch from wanting to be a firefighter to a sportscaster?
1: Uh, Probably between the ages of six and nine, (laughs) somewhere along that point. Yeah. Oh, everyone wants to, to drive a fire truck when they're a little kid. And, uh, there was a fire station near our house. But no, I I knew like a lot of us growing up in Pittsburgh, we had some great broadcasters. We had Bob Prince with the Pirates and Mike Lang, who's still with the Penguins, and Jack Fleming with the Steelers in the university uh, uh, down at WVU at West Virginia, and Bill Hillgrove with the University of Pittsburgh. So we had some really dynamic sportscasters in Pittsburgh. And, and as a child, not only were those teams very successful with the Steelers winning Super Bowls, in the Pirates winning World Series, but the announcers were dynamic and colorful and full of personality, and so I kind of gravitated towards those guys.
0: You eventually got a gift of a tape recorder like so many broadcasters did and would go up to the bleacher seats at Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh and record Pirates games, and I look back to my childhood, and I know I never would have even... Began to think about that. I was a little bit of a late bloomer. Uh, what led you to want to do that, and uh, what were the reactions you got from other fans in the bleachers?
1: Well, this would have been at Three River Stadium, and there was always seats in the upper deck behind home plate. So there was, for the most part, no one ever near us. And I would always take a friend who would do color, my buddy Bruce Rudoy, who was, uh, like me, somewhat of a, an odd bird as a child. Uh, would be my color man, my dad would drop us off. and and we did this a bunch. In fact, I, I, I got to know the the security guard at the press gate and he would always snag a couple of game note packages for me. And, and so I would always get there early and, and fill out the lineup card and, and go through the game notes. My father would record the real radio broadcast at home and, and I would sit in the stands way up behind home plate in the yellow or orange seats at Old Three River Stadium, which does not exist anymore, and, and call the Pirates games in the, uh, in the 70s.
0: How much of an advantage is it for a sportscaster to know what they want to do at such a young age? Because most people just don't. Uh, they may have a little bit of an idea or there may be breadcrumbs that maybe show that that was a fit in hindsight, but not a lot of people really know what they want to do. How did that help you?
1: Well, I didn't think I'd be really good at anything else. I wasn't great in math or science. I was clearly not a very good athlete. And I loved sports. And I had the opportunity to to meet some of the people that I mentioned earlier. Mike Lang of the Penguins lived near me. And I had a chance to meet Lanny Frateri, who was the broadcaster for the Pirates. And they were so supportive. Uh, When I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, I got to meet those guys. And I think that's one of the reasons so many of us in this business now give back or pay it forward because someone has has impacted us or touched us during our developmental stages. And look, I would have much rather played for the Pirates I mean, (laughs) or the Steelers, Uh, but that was never going to happen. Uh, But the chance to to be an announcer is something that I always wanted to do. Uh, And like I said, the guys who were doing it in Pittsburgh when I was a kid were so talented. And I I almost gravitated more towards them than the players themselves by the time I got into middle school and high school.
0: Did you do the school announcements? That's one of the things that I've heard from a lot of different people who knew what they wanted to do when they were young is that some teacher let them do the morning announcements. Was that you?
1: Yeah. 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 And in fact, I tell a lot of kids now uh, to do it. Of course, kids now, these high schools, they have their own YouTube channels and their own podcasts (laughs) and they, and they they send the announcements out by a text. But yeah, I did the I did the morning announcements. I did the public address for our uh, high school uh boys basketball team and and our high school football team. So yeah, I, I did a lot of those things. I interned at a couple of Pittsburgh radio stations while I was in high school. So I guess in a way I had I had an early head start uh in just meeting people and getting around them and being around some professionals.
0: So to bring that Thought arc to a close. Uh, The reason I wanted to know about, you know, knowing everything early in your case is you eventually decided to go to Syracuse and the Newhouse School, where obviously there's notable exceptions, but you really have to kind of have an idea what you want to do before you go there if you want to get into Newhouse, and you were able to do that, and it was a great fit for you. Take us through the decision to go there.
1: Well, I applied to two schools, Michigan State and Syracuse. They both had really good comm programs. There's a gentleman from my high school. He's now one of the broadcasters uh, for the Arizona team in the NHL, Matt McConnell. And Matt was a good friend of mine, and he went to Michigan State, and they had a great program. Uh, it's funny, uh, Matt, Matt's roommate at MSU was a Mario Mpemba, who's a big league baseball announcer. And, and and I went and visited them in East Lansing and really liked it. Saw a basketball game with the Spartans at Old Jenison Fieldhouse and. Skated. We actually rented skates and and with with a stick and a puck and and at Munn Arena. Played a little bit of uh, pickup hockey. Uh, So I really liked Michigan State. Uh, But Syracuse, even back in the 80s, had this amazing reputation. And the more I looked at it and the campus station WAER, I really fell in love with it. And I met one of the Big East television announcers, a gentleman who was a Syracuse alum by the name of Len Berman. And Len is still in New York at at a Syracuse Pitt Big East basketball game at Fitzgerald Fieldhouse one day in high school, and and this goes back to the whole thing, man, about paying it forward. Before the game, Len Berman was doing the game with Bill Raftery, and and he came over to talk with me, and I said, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a senior in high school, and I've got to decide where to go. And he could not have pitched Syracuse any harder, and he he was he was really great, and gave me some things to think about about getting on the air at W A E R and being involved with a faculty that is supportive of, of extracurricular activities. And, and and Len really opened my eyes to what SU could be, not only the great program it has, but the opportunities that you get by going there from the network, the Newhouse Network, and the opportunities to do things in New York, which are which are so critical, particularly when you're trying to advance, to, to have contacts in that city and who work in New York.
0: And I don't want to talk a lot about this, just because you talked a lot about this with Joel Godet on Play by Playcast. Did a really good job, and he covered it well, but... You had a great class in your time at Syracuse including Mike Tarico uh, Iron Eagle there was a lot of really good broadcasters there when you were there uh, just give us a quick story of what uh, somebody uh-huh. like Mike Tarico was like in college
1: Well we had some great people uh clearly mike he's the best sportscaster of our generation of my generation in my opinion and and mike was here behind me but when i got there greg papa was there greg's doing the niners this year longtime voice of the raiders and he did the pacers uh, when he first got out of college jim jackson who's with the flyers dan horde uh, of the bengals and the uc bearcats um, tony caridi the voice of, of west virginia these are the guys that when i first got there John Frankel of Real Sports with HBO. These are the guys that were already there. When, when, when Tarico showed up, uh, you could tell right away there was something great about his skill set, but you know, he was just Mike to us. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're 19, 20, 21 years old, you're not really thinking about, well, which one of us is going to do Monday night football. You know, you're, you're more concerned about which one of us has enough money to go buy pizza. <laughs> so you're not really thinking about where we're all going to be in, 15, 20, or 30 years. But Mike was exceptional in, in so many ways. Number one, he's the same guy today as he was back then in terms of just being a friendly, jovial, caring dude. And and that's kind of the Syracuse way, right? Uh, it, at least it's supposed to be. Uh, leave your ego at the door and bust your ass. And, and Mike did that right away. Uh, secondly, you know, his people talk about how smooth he is on the air. And, you know, Mike's an incredible writer. And if you listen closely to some of the things that, that he'll voice over that he has written. I'm not so sure that Mike couldn't have been one of the best sports writers of our generation, too. Uh, he's really intelligent. He's a, he's a terrific wordsmith. And I think that his ability to tell stories, which is what we all do, as we know, candidly, that that's what we're paid to do. I don't know that there's anybody uh, that's better. But he, he's developed uh, so much, and he can do so many different things. He's, he's probably the most versatile guy. That we had at Syracuse, and, and now NBC has as well.
0: So, moving on from college, you went to Marshall University after doing a little bit of freelance work. Uh, how did that opportunity come along right after school?
1: Well, I was really lucky, and that goes back to to uh, again the Syracuse network. Tony Caridi was the uh, was a broadcaster in West Virginia, where Marshall University is, and their parent company had secured the rights two Marshalls football and basketball broadcasts. And I had the opportunity, when I graduated, Tony said, hey man, we're getting Marshall, are you interested in applying? And I did, and, and I got an interview. And the athletic director was a gentleman by the name of David Brain. David had, uh, was from Grove City, Pennsylvania, just north of Pittsburgh. And so we had that in common. Dave played football at North Carolina. He was a Tar Heel. And then he got into athletics administration. And he had worked at many different schools, uh, UVA, Fresno State, and uh, he ended up uh, getting the athletics director job at Marshall. And when I interviewed, we really hit it off, talking about our, our love of Pittsburgh sports and the Steelers. And, and from Willie Stargell to Franco Harris to Bob Prince, and and Dave hired me. Uh, and I was 21 years old. I had just graduated from Syracuse. And now the job didn't pay a whole lot, but I had the opportunity to to, to you know really work on my chops as, as a as a 21-year-old doing Marshalls games.
0: What is it about that position that has led to so many high-caliber broadcasters coming through there with yourself, Wes Durham, Stan Cotton, uh, Steve Cotton, who's there now for a, for lack of a better word, mid-major school. They have had some powerhouse broadcasters.
1: Well, I think all of us feel so fortunate to have had that opportunity there. It's a, it's a very close-knit, small community. It takes its, its sports very seriously. This is going to sound like hyperbole, but I'm not so sure that Alabama fans take Alabama sports any more seriously than Marshall fans take their sports. It's just there's not as many of them. Uh, but there's tremendous passion in that community, and it goes back to the tragic plane crash. Uh, it goes back to how the sports in the community uh, were intertwined back when that occurred and how the recovery of the university and the community went hand in hand. Uh, the people there really love uh, that 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 program. And I was lucky, you know, the the, the football team when I was there uh, went all the way to the, at that point, the 1AA championship game. I won a lot of games. Uh, the attendance was fantastic. It ended up leading to a new stadium. Uh, the basketball team won 25 or 27 games the year I was there. And, and it was a lot of fun. I was only there for about eight months, not even that, about seven months, uh, but it was a really great experience for me to get on the air at a program where where people listened and gave you feedback, and it was a great experience and i and I think I think Wes would say the same thing uh, about Marshall you and mentioned- staying too. I think we all have kind of a a great appreciation for uh, a Division one school giving us that opportunity.
0: You mentioned only staying there for eight months and at the age you were at totally understandable with the opportunity you were offered was it difficult at all to leave or was virginia tech just that good of a opportunity
1: well david brain who was the athletic director who hired me at marshall went to virginia tech (laughs) so so that's how that happened uh dave went to uh, virginia tech and he's the guy that hired me at marshall and uh, this is going to sound this is the easiest job interview ever Uh, Dave called me and he said, do you want to come to Virginia Tech? And I said, sure. And he said, "Okay, call this person. That was it. It was less than from start to finish. Ten seconds. (laughs) And and again, Dave knew I would work cheap. (laughs) I was only 22 at that point. And, and you know, I, I will say this. You know, Virginia Tech back then was much different than it is now. It was an independent in football. It was not a, a big Power Five program, making lots of money with a with a hundred million dollar athletics budget. It, it was we were we were struggling to get games on the air, to build a radio and TV network, and, and it didn't pay great. Uh, but I thought, you know what? I, I I got to follow Coach Beamer, and I saw what he had done in his first year, and in, in, the, the school always reminded me of Penn State. And so Dave said, do you want to come? And that was it.
0: You stayed there for 27 years. So obviously it became what it was, but you fell in love with it before that. What was it about that area of the country and that position that you just fit with?
1: Well, first of all, the people, the, the people who were in charge, whether it was Dave Branner, the athletics director, or, or Frank Beamer, the football coach, And and, and their families, so not not just Dave, but Dave and his wife and and, and his kids, and now his grandkids are my close friends. And same with Frank and Cheryl and Shane Beamer. I mean, they they were never, it was, I mean, on the air it was Coach Beamer, but when we were hanging around, you know, I think I talked with Frank Beamer, other than my own father, probably more than any other guy in my life. So they became my closest friends. And, And Mike Burnup, my analyst for both football and basketball for every game for all those years, is still one of my dearest friends. And same with his kids. So it, it was really like working with family. And 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 people say that every school says we are family, uh, or this is a family atmosphere. But you know, at Virginia Tech, Logan, I mean, the football coach and the secretary and the other sec- secretary and the team doctor and the trainers, it didn't change for 27 years. So it was the same people every day, every year, and. Wins and losses, highs and lows, uh, births of children and deaths of parents and siblings. And, and we are all in it together. And that, that's what made it great. You know, as for that part of the country, you know, it always reminded me of Penn State. Uh, Virginia Tech and Penn State are kind of similar in their topography. Uh, if you've ever been to Penn State or, or to Blacksburg, uh, you drive forever. You start going up mountains and then you see this massive football stadium. And then there's this plateau with a massive land-grant university. And so I had been to Penn State a whole bunch as a kid and, and grew up watching Coach Paterno's teams and, and following that program, and I saw a lot of Penn State in Virginia Tech.
0: In a hypothetical alternate universe, if somewhere in between there Steve Jones decided he didn't want to do Penn State anymore, would you have left that for Penn State? sounds like you uh, were a fan growing up. Would, do you think that that would have had some pull?
1: Uh, you know that, that that is a hypothetical. I don't know. Um, that that's a really interesting question. But but after four or five years of of being around Frank Beamer and Cheryl Beamer uh, and 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 not only that, the, the the fans were just so great and so welcoming. Uh, probably not. And I uh, I really fell in love with with that community and that uh, and that life. And and it was a lot of fun for a lot, a lot of years.
0: One of your responsibilities when you were there was, I guess I don't know if it was a responsibility, I just read that you did it a lot, was you went to every Rotary Club lunch, Lions Club pancake breakfast, uh, every community appearance you could make and really ingratiated yourself and built yourself into the fabric. What is, this is probably not the right way to say it, um, how what is the best way to go about doing that and being a good MC at events?
1: Hmm. Wow. Well, number one, I, I Virginia Tech was, was not a tenth of what the University of Virginia was when I first got there in terms of its publicity within the Commonwealth of Virginia, within its radio, or TV network operations, within its sales, of its sponsorships. And, and I felt like it was kind of my, my role to get out there and do those kind of things. And and, and it, it for some people, they don't like doing it, right? I mean, a lot of people like, it's game day, I need to prepare, I need to do this. Or it's the off season. The last thing I want to do is go to four Kiwanis or Rotary or Moose Lodge clubs this week and speak. It's the off season. I kind of took the opposite approach. Uh, I, I got to know a lot of people, a lot of people from other schools, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a lot of fans from other schools. And and I think that helped me too. So if I'm speaking to a rotary club, it might only be a tenth Virginia Tech people. There are a lot of UVA fans or Carolina fans or Maryland fans or, or whomever. And and I and I learned how to speak to 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 other fan bases. And, and I think that helped me too. And it's really helping me now when I have to be objective on the air. So uh how do you get good at it? I don't know. I mean, um, I talked a lot about this with uh, Jason Benetti, another SU guy, and and Ian Eagle. You know, uh, Benetti took some some public speaking classes, and you know, Ian's family is comedians. And, and I would suggest strongly to anyone in college now to to take an improv class or or to take theater. I, I think being able to perform, you know, we don't talk about that a, a whole lot. There's a performance aspect to this, whether you're on the air or in public or in front of a, a group of potential sponsors. at at a client type of thing, Uh, there's a performance thing. And none of us are just born naturally funny or naturally engaging in front of a a room of 10 or 1,000 people. But I think it's important to be able to have that skill or at least work on developing it because it'll really help you uh, grow in your career.
0: Did you take any theater improv classes or was that just uh, something you would have done in hindsight and why you make that suggestion? Uh,
1: Yeah, in hindsight, I would have. You know, I think I, I inherited... My dad has an, had an amazing skill of telling really bad dad jokes. And I think I inherited that. And sometimes those dad jokes work. And, and I, I, I'm a big believer in, in, in loosening up an audience and being able to tell stories in, in front of a group. And I, I think it's, it's something to try. Next time you're with a group of your friends, tell a joke.
0: What's your best dad joke?
1: Oh, my goodness uh you know it's funny i not even a joke my dad has has a had a saying don't jump to confusions, <laughs> meaning if you rush a decision, it makes things worse and he would always say that no, don't go jump into confusions and uh Bernie Roth had a whole bunch of them uh, two thirds of a pun p u <laughs> just awful <laughs> i don't use those on the air believe me
0: uh you've worked with Mike Burnup your entire career that you were at Virginia Tech, so 27 years with one analyst. Yeah. It's interesting that sometimes you just hit the jackpot and have chemistry with an analyst. Was there ever any point where you had to work at it, or was it always natural?
1: So this is another thing that I would suggest a lot, and and I'm doing it now with the guys I work with now, is hang out together. I'm not talking about every day, but go to lunch together. When you're on the road, hang out together. If you have a chance to go on vacation together, when you have an opportunity. And Mike and I have just clicked. I mean, that's just chemistry. And we get along. We still get along great. We go on vacation together. Um, we've been there through the highest highs and lowest lows in our in our individual personal lives together. Uh, he's, he's my closest friend. Even though we're not on the air together, that that endures. But we, we hit it off right away. And and we got really lucky we got lucky we we were with a football program that won a lot of games and we worked you know as close as I am to, to to the Beamer family Mike is as well and very close to Frank and Cheryl and and 80 to 90% of our relationship is off the air obviously and that's that's the case with a lot of people and we're we're really good buds and i think that showed on the air i you know mike has a lot of those southern colloquialisms that that he'll use on the air Uh, that I don't, and I think the combination of kind of the, you know, the classically uh, trained straight guy uh, playing it by the book somewhat and the the goofy southern dude dropping the the sweet tea or the booger references together worked well.
0: (laughs) He, in a video where he was uh, paying tribute to you but – kind of making fun of you simultaneously called you wrong way Roth. Uh, What are some of the stories that led to that nickname?
1: So Mike never drives. And in the big East specifically, he didn't want to drive in, in, you know, we go to St. John's or New York or in Boston, Miami. He never wanted to drive in the big cities. And I would, and in the days before GPS, I always said, I know a shortcut and inevitably we would get lost. And, uh, one time we backed up through a tunnel in Boston. Uh, one time we got lost. I'll, I'll tell you this story. We were trying to get to B.C. early in the Big East football days, and there's no GPS at this point. We're lost, and, and we're driving around Boston, and finally we end up on the Harvard campus. <laughs> and Mike says, great, you got us to the wrong campus. Pull over. And we, we stopped right in front of the Harvard Law School. He says, I'm going to run in for directions. So he gets out of the car. I'm parked on the side of the street in front of the, the Harvard Law campus main entrance and mike runs into the building he's in there for about two minutes and he comes back out and he gets in the car and he said all right let's go and i said well did you get directions and he said no and i said well, what the hell were you doing in there And he said nothing i've always just wanted to tell people that i got in to harvard law
0: <laughs> you weren't able to go in with him
1: I was in the car. We finally found it. There was a typo in the BC Media Guide that we were following the directions, and you were supposed to make a a right. But now I'm I'm telling you, we did so many games in Boston. I think I know every back street uh, from Chestnut Hill to to West End to downtown. We know all the good places in Boston, and and, and that's great. It's one of my favorite cities.
0: It's interesting that you didn't ride the, the team bus or the team plane, and you drove yourselves. That's one of the things that I don't think people think of, Anymore, almost in the way that you know, we don't think of preparation through fax machines anymore. But
1: yeah, well, there was a reason yourself. for that. There was a reason for that. Um, we, we our, our shows were so early, we wanted to get there early, and we used to travel with the team. And then one time, Virginia Tech was playing Oklahoma in football, and we, we had this long ass post game show, and we got left behind. <laughs> the team plane took off and mike and i were still in the terminal trying to get through security it was it was a it was a disaster and we were our, our luggage was on the plane the radio gear was on the plane but we were at the airport in oklahoma city and we had to stay an extra night all by ourselves in uh, in oklahoma
0: <laughs> how did you end up getting back just wait for the next flight we bought one way tickets
1: yeah, try, try going to the Delta counter and saying we need two one-way tickets to Roanoke, Virginia. You should have seen the look on, on that gate agent's face. Like, sir, there's no more flights out of here tonight. So we went to a place called Cattleman's Steakhouse and had the, the biggest steak they had on their menu.
0: <laughs> I hope that made it worth it. Uh, at, at one point in 2015, you made the decision to kind of uh, – Move on from Virginia Tech and go to UCLA. It's pretty well documented that you stayed there one year and it wasn't a good fit. But uh, let's just start at the beginning there. What was the reason for kind of leaving that comfort zone and taking a job on the other side of the country?
1: Well, there, there wasn't just one reason. And there was nothing bad that happened uh, at, at either place. It wasn't like I was dying to leave Virginia Tech. It wasn't like that at all. I knew Coach Beamer was. We were coming to the end. Uh, coach and I had had that talk. Uh, I had talked a little bit with uh, Buzz Williams, who at the time was Virginia Tech's basketball coach. You know, and Buzz had been. You know, Buzz has a tendency to move around every four or five years, and you know, I was kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, and and, and so we kind of talked about that, and then with some other people too. Uh, in the business, my 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 really good friends, particularly people that work out in that conference, Dave Pash, really close close friend of mine who does TV out there, and I had family out there, and I'd been out there, uh, and and we talked about it, and and there was a there was an event I I had the opportunity to MC an event for uh very wealthy business owners, and we did it at a at a secluded uh, mountain resort in Western Tennessee. And the speakers were Ben Sutton and John Skipper. And I interviewed them in front of this panel of uh, incredibly, the wealthiest people in the country that come in to hear great people speak. And and I had a chance to talk with both Ben and, 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 and John Skipper, who have, have been incredibly successful in their careers. And I, I said, you know what, if, if I don't go to this UCLA opportunity now, I will never leave Virginia Tech. And I basically had the same job the exact same job from age 22 to age 50 and I said well if I'm ever going to leave it's going to be this job and the money was uh, outrageous and the opportunity I thought was worth taking a a shot at and so uh, I met with the people at UCLA and, and decided to make the move.
0: What ended up not being the fit? You said it wasn't anything bad just why did you not fit in that market at that school?
1: You know, there, there are a lot of reasons for it. I think that it's, it's a unique, uh, place. I think it's, uh, incredibly successful, but I think the job of, of voice of the Bruins is much different than the voice of, of most other PAC 12 or clearly any ACC or SEC school and what's expected and, and, and the things that go into it. It's, it's much, much different, uh, I, I liked the people who I worked with. They were really supportive. Uh, I just didn't, and it had nothing to do with the school. It's a great school, uh, and the people who I met, I stay in touch with, and, and there's no ill feelings. It's just, you know, I wasn't really digging it, and, and uh, Virginia Tech, the president called me a couple of times, and and, and would you be interested in never coming back? Uh, the ex-president of the university uh, called me, and, and they always wanted to start this sports media program academically at Virginia Tech, and we were able to make that work. And so I'm glad I tried it, I'll be honest with you. It's not like I regret leaving Tech, zero regret. And it was something that I felt I wanted to do and and to experience it and to see what it was like to call games at Poly and, and at the Rose Bowl.
0: After being the voice of a team from age 22 to, you said, age 50 or 51, probably by the end of that season, you had always been the voice of a team. Was it hard to do something else? I know you're still doing broadcasting for ESPN and you have a big project with the communications department at Virginia Tech, but was it hard to change your identity in that way?
1: Well, you know, I had done a couple of years of uh, super regional baseball for ESPN while I was at Virginia Tech. So I I had kind of seen, I had kind of tasted it. I had stuck my toe in it. I vividly remember... One year, Georgia and Georgia Tech played in a – the baseball tur- uh, NCA baseball tournament was different back then, and it was – I don't know if it was called Super Regionals back then, but in any event, they, they played a three-game series, and I did it, and I vividly remember the the Georgia fans were claiming that I was pro uh, Georgia Tech, and the Yellow Jacket fans were like, you are such a UGA homer. <laughs> and that was my first taste of hearing from two different fan bases – while trying to be objective. So I had done it. And before I left UCLA, actually I talked with the people at ESPN about doing it because it's something that I've always wanted to do. You know, our business is changing. I had done some TV, but I didn't know how much of an opportunity I would get, because clearly I'm joining the game late. So many of the of the guys who are who are doing it are are, are under thirty right now that are that are hopping on the, the ESPN bandwagon, so to speak. And Fox too. And I said, you know, I'm kinda late at the game. If, if I bolt from u c l a would you would you use me and, and how can I get involved and and the reaction was positive all the way to the top and and so that made it a little bit easier uh, but no i liked i i like the <laughs> i like the objectivity of it I like focusing on my craft and focusing on calling a good game and not worrying about who wins or loses
0: You're probably not going to really be able to answer this, but i'm gonna ask it anyway is it hard to see? somebody else in your old job when you're still that close, even though John Lazor is a really good broadcaster and deserves it. Is there a little tick in the back of your mind that just gets frustrated that you're not out there on Saturday afternoons?
1: Oh, not at all. And And I'll tell you why, because it's a different coaching staff. It's a different administration. It's different players. It's a different basketball coach. It's totally different people who I don't have that relationship with. I know who they are. I know them, but I don't have the relationship with them and and I want John to really succeed. So I, I I try to remain as low profile as I can. I'm, I'm never at a Virginia tech event and I'm, I'm somewhere else in someone else's press box or someone else's stadium courtside, that kind of thing. So no, I, I, I'm loving the TV. It's, it's, it's more fun than I thought it would be. And I don't know why I didn't think it was fun. I mentioned that to, to one of the, senior producers at ESPN, I said, man, this is really fun. And he said, you didn't think it would be fun? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, when, when, when you're doing the, a team and you're, you're worried about the post-game show and how, how you know, cranky the, the, the basketball coach is going to be or you've got to worry about a 30-minute TV show every Sunday, you're not getting any days off. You're working seven days a week. And, and there's, there's just so much that goes into it. My job at Virginia Tech, to be honest, was probably 70% of it was off-air stuff. It was can you help with tickets? Can you help with this sponsor? Can you come speak at that? the this TV station didn't get the TV show? Can we get a satellite refeed? and then trying to work that. there there were a lot of logistics that that I don't have to worry about anymore, so I'm glad John can handle. It. <laughs> I'm candidly happy that John can handle it. I can sleep in on Sundays.
0: Did you have to go back to school or get any extra education to get into? Uh, the academic side in building that program
1: no and isn't that crazy so so i'll tell you a story and and, and we can cuss because it's a podcast right yes so i, I come back to tech and, and i meet before we even did this sign the deal i i said I, I said i don't know anything about this stuff and they said we're putting with you with this very distinguished doctor who does curriculum at virginia tech and she's Designed classes and programs for for 40 years. She's about to retire. She's in her 70s, and she was this stately, exactly what you'd think about in terms of a long-term academician. Even she even had the British accent going. So, we're we're in a, we're in her office, and we're talking, and she goes, she's asking me all these questions, and she says, Bill, just so you know, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know shit about sports, and and I laugh, and I said, well. Thank you doctor and I'll be honest with you I don't know shit about curriculum. And and she said perfect we'll make a great team. And and so she designed all the courses. And she designed the syllabus and she designed the textbooks. And I just threw in these are these are the 20 things I think are important in a journalism class or a play by play class. And then they designed them for me. And and that was great because I didn't have a clue of, of how to do this or put it together because you know I cut about 50% of the classes that I was supposed to go when I was a student at Syracuse so how was I supposed to teach them um, but my job now I mean it's, it's not teaching it's not a lecture hall kind of thing it's more like kids go out do games we review their tapes we look at their prep we do their uh, for the journalism class I read their stories we bring in a ton of guest speakers so it, it's not the typical uh, professor in a lecture hall wearing a bow tie and a tweed coat
0: talked about this a little bit with matt park from syracuse who does some teaching as well and you're maybe even better to talk about this as someone who's in charge of a program how do you balance the importance of you know the real academic stuff the gpa the being at every class versus taking opportunities to get real world experience maybe at the cost of studying for a test how do, you, how do you tell students to balance that? Because when it comes down to it, very few sportscasting jobs are ever going to ask you for your uh, GPA or academic credentials.
1: The next journalist, the next great journalist who got that way by sitting in a classroom will be the first. I believe they need to get out and do stuff. You don't learn anything by reading about broadcasting in a book and they've got to go out and do games and do podcasts and anchor shows. And, no, I'm a big believer in that. Uh, I, I'm probably – I don't care if they're missing class. I want them out doing stuff. And you get graded on the work you turn in. You miss three classes in a row, I don't care, but your package better be really good. <laughs> or if not, you don't get a good grade, and you got to do it again. And I tell them at the beginning of the semester, I don't care what grade you get. I, w- I want you to have – it's a 16-week semester – you should have 16 things on your demo reel that's worth a news director, if you're going for a sports job on TV, taking a look at. He said, I want you to have really good play-by-play demos so that if you're going for a minor league baseball job, we've got six guys doing minor league or, or wood bat league baseball this summer, college league baseball right now. And they got there by doing a Virginia Tech game in, in April, March and April on our campus and having a really good demo. And these kids are freshmen and sophomores and they're going to do this for three years, whether they're in the North, um, Northwoods league. Is that that what it's called up there in Minnesota? Um, Yes. Whatever. Yeah. Or the Appalachian league. We've got a a kid who's a sophomore doing the Pulaski Yankees, which I think is an amazing thing for college. This is a kid after his freshman year. Uh, I I want them on the air as much as possible. You know, the the grammar is important. Understanding the AP style book is important. Yeah. Um, Being disciplined to come to class and getting up and going, yeah, is important, but it's more important to be able to be really good on the air, and and so that's what we strive for. And I should mention this about Syracuse. You know, Matt has been really supportive. Everyone at Syracuse and at Newhouse helped me a a great deal. Um, The department head up there, who has since retired, John Nicholson, um, Dean Branham, who unfortunately has passed uh, here in the last few months, uh, was incredibly, incredibly supportive with sharing some ideas and i went up to su and looked there there were a bunch of schools where where i visited with uh, instructors like how do you do this Uh, david hunsiker at oklahoma state teaches a class and he put me in touch with the person who runs their program and how do you how do you do it what do you do when you have a kid who doesn't really want to do it but is in your class those type of questions and um, but the the syracuse people could not have been more supportive we've taken a lot of their ideas we've We've just added the, uh, the Southern charm to the new house model.
0: <laughs> how much, after seeing students coming through in a couple of different classes, how much of success do you think has to do with natural talent and what percentage is development? The old nature versus nurture in a sportscasting uh, vacuum.
1: Nature wins 95% of the time. I don't think you can teach someone to be a good play-by-play guy. Uh, they either come in with the with the passion and the skill. Uh, we can help. Don't get me wrong. We we can help. I can help, and and the other people who work with me, Andrew Allegretta, who's uh, also teaches a class at Virginia Tech. We've got an internship program. Uh, it it you need both. You definitely need both. But it's it's not on the academic side. The 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 collegiate experience is much more about making friends and networking and bonding and having other people who have the similar goals who push you. I think that was the, you hear a lot about people that don't go to Syracuse or have not really understood what the WAER model is. I think what's the best part about it is, is you've got a group of 15 to 40 really like minded young men and women who push each other. They listen to each other's work and uh, there's some, there's some peer pressure. There's some professional pressure. There's some friendly competition in a way. Uh, But I think having like-minded people who push each other makes us all better. And and I think everybody that's gone through that would tell you the same thing.
0: There's a quote in one of the articles I read getting ready for this that describes you as having a classically trained yet down-home voice. And I was just curious, as far as voice itself goes, what did you do to classically train it? Or do they just say (laughs) you have a classically (laughs) trained sound?
1: I didn't write that. Where'd you get that? (laughs) Uh, It was an article. I don't know. I don't know that that's true, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's out there.
1: Okay. Oh, I didn't write it, so I don't know that that's true. Um, You know, I think it's a... So, so back to Syracuse, right? So, there was this professor from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, named Roosevelt Wright. He went by Rick. Rick Wright. And Rick was from Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And he was, and still is, uh, this jovial, friendly a larger than life personality and he would tell his stories about being a dj overnight on the on uh, the radio in syracuse and and at the top of each hour he would throw it to his twin brother for the news and there was no twin brother <laughs> it, it was rick and he would change his voice at the top of the hour and, and and read the news and then he would throw it back to his his brother for the rest of the music hour and and so rick taught this performance class and 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 I think it was a really good class, and still is at Syracuse. Uh, it's a very good class think of it think of it as karaoke for journalists. Get up in front and perform every day, every day and i think I think that class and that culture helped me, uh, but no, I never took voice lessons, and my voice is not phony or fake, and what you're hearing now is for the most part. Other than probably, you know, when you enunciate and hit your your Ts and your consonants harder on the air and project a bit more, it's what I'm like off air.
0: In Virginia, you've won the State Sportscaster of the Year eleven times. You were in, inducted into the W A E R Hall of Fame. You're in the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. I'm pretty sure you won the Bob Costas Award. A lot of hardware in your broadcasting career, and nobody gets into broadcasting to win awards but does that give you a certain validation knowing that you've been able to be recognized by peers in that fashion
1: yeah it does at the time but again that's not why we're in it and at least that's not why i'm in it i'm in it for the relationships with the people my 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 peers and my colleagues and and the coaches who i work work and worked with and those athletes but no i'm the happiest. This is funny. That so we brought in Corey Probus to do our women's basketball games, and Corey did he did uh, Virginia Tech women's basketball and some other things for us in Blacksburg, and he was there for three or four years. And great, great dude, as everyone knows. When, when Corey got hired by the Cubs uh, to work on WGN, that was one of the happiest days of my tenure at Virginia Tech. Tony Luftman came in and did our women's basketball games. And when Tony got hired, he left Virginia Tech to do TV with the with the Memphis Grizzlies sidelines. I was so, I was happier for those two kids when they got the those two young men when they got those positions than than any award or any job or anything that I've ever gotten. Uh, I'm maybe wired differently in that regard, but I'm I'm just so proud of those guys and, and I'm happy that we were able to use our positions at Virginia Tech to help launch their careers. You know, now Corey is obviously doing great things with the twins and, and Tony's on NHL network in New York. Uh, they're both married with kids and that's, that's, that's my joy of this. It's the relationships, not anything else.
0: Do you have a trophy case where you display things or where do you keep the awards themselves?
1: Honestly, they are in a, they are wrapped up in uh, boxes in a closet
0: <laughs> it, it's interesting. it shows a lot of personality uh, of how people are wired when you find out where they keep their awards <laughs> and, uh, some people have say they're out on the mantel some people say they're in a box in the closet. I always find I that, have that interesting. Got,
1: let me look right? so i 'm sitting here in my office i've got all my family pictures up and i've got there's one I, my Virginia Hall of Fame award is hanging. Not the big plaque. The little one is hanging here, but that's it. Everything else is. Uh, look, I mean, I understand it. it. It's 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 exciting and it's great to win. And and I always, I always thought I'm representing my school or my ISP or IMG. I, I'm representing my company at these award banquets because it, it's never an individual award. I mean, I don't win anything without Mike Burnop. Uh, I. The great broadcasters, for the most part in our country's history, broadcast for great teams. You know, Michael Vick made me a better broadcaster. Frank Beamer made me a better broadcaster. The the, the 70,000 fans that were cheering behind my calls, that's the audio track. They helped, right? I mean, those calls sound really good because there's, there's 88,000 people at, at a stadium roaring behind a call. And, and, and so those fans get... Uh, credit they're part of it
0: give us a couple Michael Vick stories I don't like to talk about sports themselves but when people are covering a transcendent figure like that just give us a couple stories of what he was like in things he was doing in practice behind the scenes that just blew everybody's mind
1: so he red-shirted his freshman year at Virginia Tech in 1998 And he came in, and you knew he was really good, but they had told his high school coach that he would definitely redshirt. And Syracuse was the opponent that week, and Mike Vick was was pretending on the scout team to be Donovan McNabb. And Virginia Tech had a really good defense. And they're getting ready to play Syracuse, and in practice that week they could not stop Vick. And I told Coach Beamer, I said, Mike Vick is a better Don McNabb than Don McNabb. And Frank said to me, he said, Michael Vick will be a better college quarterback than Donovan McNabb. And he was right. And as great as Donovan McNabb was, you know, Mike never lost a game he started until the national championship game against Florida State in the Sugar Bowl. That's the only game Michael Vick started and lost in his whole career. And he transcended uh, the position in a way, and he clearly changed the level of which Virginia Tech football was thought of Uh, nationally and uh, so that that 98 week of the Syracuse week um, you know after his sophomore year uh, he said we were talking candidly because he was he was a good friend of mine and I knew his I knew his mom and still do and he said I think that I could be the number one pick in the NFL draft if I come out early I remember this conversation like it was yesterday it was not an interview we were just talking and he said everybody at Virginia Tech wants me to stay these agents want me to go and I remember I said, I said, well, you know, Don McNabb hosted you on your recruiting trip to SU. You need to talk to guys that have made this decision recently. So this would have been in the late 90s. And we were talking about guys like Manning and, and, and McNabb. I said, reach out to them. We 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 can get you in touch with Peyton Manning. We'll figure it out if your agent can, if you sign with him. And he said, if I come back, do you think I could be better? And I said, yeah. I said, you'll get better if you compl- play another year of college. But if I go... They think I could get a $30 million bonus. That's what the Falcons would pay me. I remember I was with it was me and Burnup, and we said, dude, if you can get $30 million, go. And of course, he did go, and the Falcons paid him that.
0: Wouldn't that be nice?
1: $30?
0: <laughs> I'd take a $30 bonus.
1: So here's a here's another funny story. So so, so Mike's with the Falcons and he goes to the Pro Bowl and he's doing great and the Falcons are playing great. And so he has this golf outing in Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh it was a Vic Foundation thing at, at uh really, really nice PGA event. So Mike has this event. He asked me to MC it. So I come down and I MC it and we're talking. And you know, Mike's wearing his rings and he's you know, he's dressed out with chains and he's looking great and and he says, uh He says, How well do you know West Durham? I go, Oh, he's a really good friend of mine. He goes, West Durham is rich.
0: (laughs) How could that how could that happen? How could he not know?
1: I still tell Wes that. I go, dude, Michael Vick thinks you're rich.
0: (laughs) I also read somewhere that you are musical. You like to play the piano and you own your own baby grand. How often do you play? And how do you feel that having secondary interests like that helps you as a broadcaster?
1: Well, the piano was my sister's. My sister, Linda Roth, who was an Emmy, an Emmy Award winning composer who lived in Laguna Beach and who died uh, about eight or nine years ago. This was her piano. It was in our house when we were growing up. She had it with her, and, and, and she gave it to me. I play it a lot. Uh, Linda kind of taught me how to play when I was a little tyke, and I really enjoy it. Uh, I think having music as a back, as a, as a secondary, uh, and I'm not so sure it's secondary to be quite honest. I, I'm not sure I don't like music just as much as as, as sports and, and broadcasting right now. I think they're very similar. Uh, you know how you tell a story on the air or how you do chord progressions. You know I, I love some of the great lyricists, and I've used some of them. I mean, if you go back and listen closely to some broadcasts, you'll you'll hear some uh, Eagles lyrics. Uh, in a lot of our broadcasts, uh, some people catch catch on, uh, others don't. Uh, there's a lot of Elton John lyrics that have slipped. Uh, well, it's actually Bernie Toppin's lyrics that have come into my broadcasts uh, over the years. Uh, Maroon 5, um, Bruno Mars. I mean, there there have been some lyrics that's, that that have snuck in there uh, during the broadcast. But but I enjoy it. I play it a lot, and, and I love it. It's a great escape, and it reminds me of my sister, of course. And my family, we're all kind of somewhat musically inclined. Uh, can't sing, uh, but but I, but I love to play the piano. Yeah.
0: Have you ever gotten social media mentions or fan mail or anything that was meant for a different Bill Roth? Like, the, for example, there's a there's a gymnast who was uh, successful. Yeah, from
1: Temple. Yes.
0: Yeah. Have Have you ever gotten mixed up?
1: No, no. Bill Roth, the Temple temple gymnast, is much more athletic. Um, You know, he can can do the incredible thing on the pommel horse. I'm more likely to fall off a horse. (laughs) He's not anywhere (laughs) as uncoordinated as I. So, no, you know, uh, when I was in college, Delaware Senator William Roth, who, of course, uh, very successful political career, I had one of his signs. We we were playing a game when Syracuse was playing a game in in somewhere in suburban Philadelphia, and we we ripped off a, a, a Bill Roth for Senate sign. <laughs> but that's about it.
0: I just I've talked to other people who have uh, people with the same name out there, and usually there's a story on social media or getting a phone call, finding the wrong number number or something. Yeah, sort of,
1: so. yeah, yeah. I don't get that. You know, my family calls me Billy, so I mean. I get called Billy, and if, it, if, if the phone rings and it asks for Bill, I know it's a professional call. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. What was it like calling a national title game? I know that you probably don't change your prep process very much, if at all, but the energy surrounding that event and knowing that you're at the biggest stage of college football, how was it different than just any other game?
1: Well, I've I've done two of them, uh, not 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 including some ESPN. I did some ESPN lacrosse national championship games, but for my team, when I was a senior at Syracuse, uh, Paul Peck and Mike Tarico and I broadcast the Syracuse Indiana game from the Superdome, and that was the game that that uh, Keith Smart hit a left corner shot in the final seconds, and in Indiana won the national title in New Orleans, and that was in 1980 seven and then in 1999 i called the virginia tech national championship football game of virginia tech florida state ironically both games at the superdome coincidentally the team that i was broadcasting for had the lead in the fourth quarter and lost them both and i and i think for Syracuse fans, the Keith Smart shot is 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 still the, one of the most painful games. And I think if you asked Frank Beamer what was his toughest loss ever, it was that game. Uh, it, it, when you're so close to winning it and don't, it's it's crushing because it's first of all it's so hard to get there. It is so 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 hard for a college football team to make it all the way to that championship game and to have the lead in the fourth quarter and not win it is a killer. Same with hoops. And and fortunately for Coach Beheim, he got back again and again, and he's won it, and, and that's great. But at the time, it, it was bad uh, and very painful. The preparation for it—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, it, there's so much information out there. There's so many press conferences to go to. Uh, that there's there's so much information. I still have the tapes of, of both of those games, and, and I need to go back and listen to, to see how they sound here now all these years later. This will be 20 years since the Vic uh, versus uh, Wanky uh, BCS championship game.
0: You mentioned Beheim, and I know most people who go to Syracuse have a story about asking a question that he objected to and getting chewed out in front of the entire press conference. Do you have that?
1: Yeah, and I think Jim Beheim deserves an awful lot of credit for uh, the broadcast success that we all have too because – you know, he'll he'll jump your ass in a press conference in front of everybody else if he doesn't like the question. And he did that to me uh, twice. And I'm, uh, I vividly remember it. My freshman year, I did an interview with Coach Beheim about uh, the Carrier Classic, and I, and I made a, a comment about the field not being strong, and he took great exception to that and told me so. And then once after a, a, a Georgetown game, I asked a question in a press conference in front of all the cameras in the national media and he chewed my ass out right in the press room at the carrier dome. And I think that helps. And we're, we're friends. I mean, it wasn't a negative thing at the time it was, but you know, the next time I saw him, he was great. And interviews were fine. But if you ask him a dumb question, you're going to get, that's a dumb, dumb ass question. Uh, and, and I think that helps because it makes you really think and, 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 Think through your question before you answer it. And that's a great skill to have when you're 19 or 20 and you're trying to learn it. And He's not trying to intimidate you. If you ask a good question, it doesn't matter if you're with the Daily Orange or WAER or ESPN. He, he will answer your question and respect it. By the same token, I mean, if you go back and look, there there's a video about him just crushing Andy Katz, who, who's probably as well-respected as a journalist as there is in a press conference. He didn't do it to intimidate you. I think he did it to make you ask better questions.
0: One of the things in Syracuse that I found out about really pretty recently, probably four or five episodes ago when I was talking to uh, Chris Lewis, is the the Media Cup game. And this just fascinates me to no end because I just try to picture in my head a bunch of journalists and play-by-play guys actually trying to play basketball. And I, I just wanted to know, did they have the Media Cup when you were at Syracuse? Absolutely. Win, and who were the best actual basketball players out of the broadcasters?
1: Well, I don't know that we were that good. It's just that the Daily Orange guys were, and to this day, are consistently uh, short and uncoordinated. And uh, I think that's a that's a, a trait of, of Daily Orange writers. Uh, I don't think we were really that good. <laughs>
0: But who was the best out of your bunch?
1: Doug Sherman. Doug's with ESPN now, and Doug is a—he's—he's he's an upstate New York guy and Western New York guy. And Doug was a great point guard. So, so Bayheim had Sherman Douglas. We had Douglas Sherman, <laughs> and I think that helped.
0: What are your broadcasting horror stories? And when I say that. A time where you went to call a game and something went horribly wrong due to uh, location or equipment or just some sort of really odd circumstance that was maddening at the time, but you can laugh at now?
1: Well, I think we've all had the the, the, uh, equipment failures and... The, you, you sleep through the bus on the way. I did I did uh, Richmond Braves games for a bunch of years, and, and you're always concerned about missing the bus. Uh, all right, here's one that you'll enjoy. <clears throat> Virginia Tech basketball has lost probably four or five in a row. <clears throat> I am late getting to the arena because it's snowy. Uh, I, I'd given myself what I thought was plenty of time, and I, I was able to drive, but the traffic was backed up. Not game traffic. This is four hours before the game. So so I get to the arena really late, and Seth is coach. Seth Greenberg is the coach. And he was not in a good mood to begin with. And now I'm late for his interview. And so I walk in, and there's already steam coming out of his ears. So we we get the recorder going, and I'm sure every broadcaster can can appreciate this and and imagine it. So imagine I really pissed off Seth. Pissed at me because I'm late. And the fact that they've lost four in a row and you're about 30 seconds into the interview and the low battery light comes on the recorder and he's talking and he's talking and I know we're going to have to stop this thing. I got to replace the batteries and B Logan, the batteries are in my car. (laughs) That's the horror story.
0: Uh, What did he say when you said you had to go get batteries?
1: You gotta be effing prepared for this, I, you know. Like you know. Seth and I are good friends, and we laugh about it now. Um, I, I worked with I worked with Seth for nine years, pregame shows, postgame shows, a weekly television show, and a weekly radio show. Um, I I was with Seth Greenberg, uh, I don't know a thousand hours, and we 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 talk a lot, and he's a good friend, and uh, he is he is landed in a great spot. He's amazing on the air. He's uh he's a really good a really good basketball guy. I think I learned more basketball from Seth Greenberg than anyone I've ever met.
0: All right. One of the final things that I would like to ask everybody before we finish up is if you have an off day and you are just watching or listening to somebody, who do you enjoy watching or listening to both on a national level and uh, regional level, and I'm going to put a twist on it for you. No Syracuse guys.
1: Well, that's okay. So let me let me back up on this. In my current responsibility, okay, I have got to listen to our guys that are doing minor league baseball. So last night, I'm listening to Evan Hughes uh, call his game with the with in, in the Northwoods League with the Rocks. Or I'm listening to Jake Lyman call the Herndon Braves, or these are names you've not heard of yet. Uh, or Kevin DiDomenico call the Pulaski Yankees. Um, a lot of the Syracuse kids that are that are in minor league baseball, uh, I, I, I I tend at this point because of my current role to listen to people who have asked me for a critique, and or who I'm getting paid to teach, <laughs> right? I, I you know I've, I've got. I got a lot of, of time invested in these, in these people. And, and so right now, to be honest, I'm listening to those. Now, if you're asking me who do I enjoy watching, it, it's, it's Al Michaels. Uh, if, if I can't mention Tariko, it's, it's uh, Al Michaels. I love the way he does a game. Uh, I, I love the technique that Jim Nance uses in, 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 his, in his NFL calls, how he sets up plays, how he resets things coming out of breaks. How he's conversational, getting in and out of reads, uh, how how he relates with his color analyst. I think that on the TV side, and this is m- much more so than radio, it's all about how you're how you're lobbing that ball. You're the point guard. How you're lobbing that ball to your analyst or to your sideline person. So I'm I'm really interested in that. And then and then, to be honest, I'm, if I know who's producing a game, I'm I'm going to watch, you know, how they're doing it because I want to see, you know. I, you, every producer has his own way of of doing a game. And so if I know who's producing it and I'm working with that producer, that helps me. And, and so I look at that and, and then if it's a team, I'm getting ready to broadcast. If we're getting ready to do an SMU game, I'm going to watch the last couple of SMU games. So I'm, I'm watching more, you know, so it's not really the broadcaster I'm watching. It's, it's the X's and O's of the game and some storylines. So, you know, that for a while there, Two years ago, I think Mike Cousins did a game of a team that I did like the next week three times. And then I think last year it, it flipped. Like Mike would do the the team the week before, and then I would get him the next week. Uh, so I would we would we would trade notes, and I would always watch his work before I got to do that team.
0: If somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so?
1: Um. Well, if you're a, a music uh, industry executive and you want me to you know, sit in sit in with Bruno Mars on his next concert I'll give you my number the uh billroth at vt.edu is probably the, the easiest way uh easy enough billroth at vt.edu or via twitter my I think my direct men uh, direct messages are open
0: once again we are visiting with bill roth he is a broadcaster for ESPN a communications professor at virginia tech and bill Thanks so much for giving me some of your time.
1: You bet. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, at Radio underscore Logan on Twitter, at Score on Instagram, and Facebook.com slash SayTheDamnScore on Facebook. Emails or reviews are also really appreciated. And last but not least, please reach out to the guests of this show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.